This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Pass-fail claw machines. Vamic courts. Classic character cop shows. And Rudolf Steiner. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Robin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash Robin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The smell of the cotton candy machine, the sound of the cotton candy machine... And the whir of the teacups tell us we're walking down the midway. We're not in the gaming hut at all. But as we know, the gaming hut is everywhere, especially when one has exciting game-on-the-brain condition the way that Robin does. And here on the midway, there are uh, ducks to shoot and giant bunnies to win. But Robin, you have your eye on that bet noir of our childhood, the claw machine. So how is the claw machine brought you back around into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. Now, I never played a claw machine. Did you ever monkey around with one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I played with them uh, quite a bit. I I would usually get a decent prize, but never like the really cool truck or whatever that there was in the middle of it. In my day, we didn't have uh, iPad boxes sitting there and there looking as if you could possibly lift an iPad box. <laughs> no, it was it was it was like a it was like a Tonka truck. It was yeah. always the the big win in the claw machines of my youth. Uh, my favorite carnival game actually was the one where you're uh, squirting the water into the clown mouth and it. Uh, expands the balloon and the person whose balloon blows up first uh, is the winner and i like that because a somebody won so if you're good at it it could be you uh you're competing against other people not the house 
Uh, two, the trick was to have the trigger already pulled and pointed toward the clown mm -hmm. as soon as the water came on. Yes. And three, this helped me later in life when arsonists set fire to the front porch of the house next door, and I was able to uh, ably extinguish it with a fire extinguisher. So using using the um, uh, the clown mouth uh, the clown moistening <laughs> skills you picked mouth up. Mouth technique. Yes. Right. Yes. So that's that's an example there of you go. Uh, training get, getting you XP. So. Yes, they, they they begin with the fire, and then there's a sepia-tinged or slightly washed-out flashback of young Robin firing a, a gun into the clown mouth while your mentor stands over you and says, That's the key. Keep yes. it on the clown's mouth, boy. Yes. Do not think of the clown mouth. Be the clown Be mouth. Be the clown mouth. I'm, I'm not sure what how you would save the world uh, with, with claw machine skills. But anyway, um, I recently got a lot of uh, hits. Uh, by posting a link to an article on, on Vox.com about <laughs> the way those claw machines work. Okay. And uh, this is not about politics. So you, you can suspend your, your skepticism about, I, about well, uh, this particular okay. Vox.com. It, it, it's still about verifiable facts. So. Um, well, they, <laughs> well, they believe article they, in quote marks, and I'm sure that they stole it from a reputable source. So continue. Well, there you go. They, <laughs> they did have a copy of the manual. All right. Um, so the idea is that the uh, claw machines can be set by the proprietor of the arcade to uh, inconsistently apply strength to the object uh, so that uh, only one out of X number of times uh, is the claw going to firmly grip the object that you've placed it over. Right. And uh, the other times it's going to but lightly grip so that, uh, you know, you think you've got hold of the Tonka truck or the uh, stuffed uh, monkey or whatever it is, but in fact you can't possibly lift at that time and right. there's no way that you're going to win. And the article framed this about, uh, you know, the machines being rigged. Um, now Ripping I don't the know lid on much... Big Carnival, as Vox.com is so fond of doing. Uh, yeah. Going after their foes, <laughs> that bad circus on the side of town. Yes. Now, anyone who's who's been to a Midway or, in fact, a, you know, grown-up gambling knows that uh, all of these games are stacked so that uh, you can't just always win them with skill. There's got to be something going on, but uh, what I wanted to focus on is the way that this actually mirrors engagement in all sorts of different areas, in entertainment and in games that uh, it's a punctuated reward mechanism. And so if, for example, you never saw anyone ever win at the claw machine, or in fact, you know, if you're a constant player of the claw machine, well, A, I would say it's another hobby, but B, if, if you kept going, if you know, if you if you never, ever win, you're going to stop playing. But if you occasionally win or occasionally see people win, you're, or you, in this case, come really close to winning because you saw the, the grip on the stuffed monkey and, and then just didn't get it for other reasons, you are going to keep playing. And other people uh, in the arcade watching the claw machine uh, being worked, it's important if they're potential claw machine customers to draw them in as well. And so this mirrors... Uh, for example, the way narrative works, where if the character is uh, successful every time they try something difficult and procedural, and there's no better example of a purely procedural task than trying to uh, grip a Tonka truck with a claw, that if you have your heroes always succeed at their procedural tests, that that's going to be boring. And if mm -hmm. you have them always fail, that's going to be boring. But what is exciting is they sometimes succeed and they sometimes fail. And it's largely unpredictable, although apparently if you watch the machines enough you can't actually detect the pattern because the only variable uh, the proprietor can set up whatever difficulty level they want but if you sit there and watch the only variable is the skill of the person operating the machine and so after a while if the person is 
equally skillful each time, you can then detect the rhythm and see where the pass-fail cycle is and win you that monkey. So that sort of brings the whole notion of uh, the path, what I call the pass-fail cycle into play because uh, in HeroQuest, for example, I uh, intentionally installed a, a similar mechanism whereby if you failed a bunch of previous times because HeroQuest is about trying to emulate the way stories work, it uh, encourages strongly the GM to then provide other tests with lower difficulties that you can succeed at and then move through the narrative. And now it essentially codifies something that a lot of GMs naturally kind of do, but not the way that they think about obstacles uh, necessarily. So Kim, what have your experiences been with the sort of punctuated success failure or the pass fail cycle or whatever you want to call it? In my experience, obviously, I think that we pretty much know from, you know, Pavlov on down behavioral research that uh, intermittent success is the best possible way to get someone addicted to something and to someone paying attention to what's going on, really focusing and really wanting to get the whatever it is. Because if they're always successful, it does become less challenging and, and the just the dopamine level goes down from winning. If they're never successful, then they would have to be crazy people to keep doing it. So what you want is a good intermittent success. And I suppose figuring out the exact rhythm is what they do, you know, back at the MK Ultra Labs or wherever. But in my experience, the number of times that I, the GM, have to intervene to loosen or tighten the claw is pretty nugatory. What I try to do is set up a universe in which the players can, by studying it, by learning it, playing in it, figure out what looks like it's going to be the, the hard road, what looks like it's going to be the easy road. The easy road always, you know, has other problems with it. It takes longer, it's more obvious, it, it's got some other uh, countervailing effect to it that make, maybe makes them think, well, we'd rather just go at it, you know, straight, straightforward, or we'd rather do the hard thing. But I find that if you present a world in which what the, the setting of the claw is uh, figure-outable by the players they will, by and large, respond to that with a rhythm that feels natural to them. That If they want to go after something easy, they will let you know that in terms of what they say they're doing, and I don't have to adjust anything, because the world told them it was easy. It was, in fact, easy. The only times that it becomes unexpectedly difficult that I loosen the claw is if the bad guy is deliberately guarding that easy pass. And so now they say, oh, now we have information. Even though we failed, that failure was informative. It tells us the bad guy really cares about that easy road or that there's some uh, person there that is making it harder than it should be. And now the new job is to find out who that guy is. And again, there's easy ways and hard ways. And the player characters and the players, by and large, sort of learn the rhythm of how the world works and can then apply the disjuncture based on a narrative logic, b how they feel in the given moment, and c whether or not we are you know 15 minutes from the end of game and they'd like to actually move the the plot forward, um, and all of those are again, and I want to say maybe four times out of five, maybe even nine times out of ten, those are player decisions that I as the GM don't really have to change the rhythm up as long as I've given the world a fairly consistent response mechanism. The equivalent, as you say, of watching the claw enough times that you've sussed out the rhythm. Players can suss out the rhythm. They say, well, that place is a giant uh, basalt uh, fortress sitting on a crag guarded by smoke monsters and Nazis. That's probably the hard way. Maybe the easy way is to go in through the tunnels. 
that don't have any guards. And, of course, the tunnel's going to be full of talking spiders and other horrible things, but it's going to be still be easier than going frontal assault on that basalt castle, right? Right. So you are, rather than looking at things in terms of a pass-fail cycle, you're looking at presenting choices to the players of uh, putatively difficult and putatively easy with countervailing disadvantages. Mm-hmm. And so it might be that, you know, in order to keep it exciting, uh, you know, the, the uh, oh, well, here come the talking spiders, you actually have to make sure that uh, neither one of them is actually a walkover. Right. But in fact, that the, they really have the choice between the known difficulty uh, of the basalt tower or the unknown difficulty of what's going to give them resistance when they go the apparently easy way. And again, the player characters will be optimized for one or another approach, right? If they're dungeon crawlers, they're going to be optimized for going through a dungeon, not for a frontal assault on a basalt tower. And so that's why that looks like the easy approach. But if you were instead um, playing some sort of, I don't know, Glenn Cook, Black Company fantasy mercenary game, maybe for them the easy approach would be, uh, you know, raise an army, assault the basalt tower, and take it, as opposed to sneaking up through a, a, a bunch of tunnels that they don't have enough thieves or they don't have enough clerics to necessarily uh, stay alive in. Doesn't that make it a less fraught question, though, of just looking at the two problems and seeing which one matches their character sheet? That can, but, you know, again, you don't put it out as as clearly as that, ideally. Uh, you'll let the players decide that, and it's the action of the players deciding that I think creates identification with the player character, because in the same way that their, their wizard or their uh, paladin is deciding what is the smart play based on the party's strengths, they're making that same decision. And so it, I don't think that it weakens it at all. It, it increases player identification with the character and player identification with the world because they have to take the problem seriously enough to evaluate it. The advantages of uh, being cognizant of pass-fail are what we've already described, that there is greater engagement because there's more suspense mm-hmm. uh, as to whether you're going to uh, succeed or fail. And that if you have a game where the characters come up with the perfect plan uh, that is absolutely risk-free and then execute it perfectly, that's going to be very exciting uh, or, or uh, create some sort of uh, non-excitement-related mental reward to the one player in, in the group who is the dedicated tactician who uh, is all about minimizing uh, risk and maximizing effect. But for the rest of the uh, players, uh, especially the ones who did not have as tight a role in the formation of that plan as the others, because most groups have one or two planners at most, that they are going to have a a difficulty uh, remaining engaged if it's just, we have the plan, we execute the plan, we win, woohoo. They are not going to uh, feel as engaged by it as as they might if there were more suspense about uh, how things come out. So uh, when you're dealing with tactician players, the challenge then is to uh, balance the suspense and uh, unexpected result that everybody else kind of consciously, or I would argue even more unconsciously, desires versus the uh, desire on the part of that tactician to uh, work out all the angles and just have everything uh, go right and uh, perfectly anticlimactically. The um, other part of that, though, is that no GM worth their salt is going to present a plan that, even if it is the perfect plan, and even if it is executed perfectly, never engages the other characters. That there's always going to be something for them to do. That the perfect plan may involve, and now is the time when Hank hit him a lot, uh, comes out and hits them a lot. And it's a, an exciting fight, just like 
uh, Hank's player uh, uh, has shown up to do. And the part of the perfect plan, and I think that's part of the collaboration between the tactician player and the GM, is to make sure that the perfect plan incorporates stuff for the other players to do, or else it is, on at least a meta level, not a perfect plan. I mean, right, and, and introduces suspense as to whether they're going to succeed or not. Right. right. That if that maybe the perfect plan is that one character, you know, says, oh, I have the, you know, all-seeing of I have Agamotto, we'll just use that. And it's like, well, all right, now what? But in but what that becomes instead, that becomes the opening segment, the pre-credit James Bond segment, the badass establishment, and then comes the real challenge. Because if it was susceptible that to that level of perfect plan, one where only one or two characters gets to do anything, then I would argue that it wasn't it shouldn't have been the real objective of the game. Right. But it's all about finding different ways to both reward and thwart the tactician mm-hmm. whose fantasy is of the execution of the perfect low risk plan yeah. in order to introduce the excitement that everybody else has shown up for. Mm-hmm. And so if Harry hit him a lot, knows that all he has to do is, you know, roll a two or higher on a d20 to defeat the goblins at this crucial moment, uh, that's not going to be uh, particularly engaging because you it's a predetermined outcome and uh, there's no, uh, you know, the risk that the tactician wishes to uh, remove from the game is uh, often the fun that everybody else is, is there for. Right. Um, another challenge with the pass-fail cycle is that if you are a sort of a ground-up thinker and you are thinking in terms of your world as a simulation and your first question to yourself is always, well, what would be logical in the world in terms of how difficult would it be to scale the basalt castle or rather go in the underground tunnels, that you're going to have a sort of a viewpoint difficulty in shifting that from, well, they've had an easy time of it so far. I should hit them with something uh, exciting that scares them a little. What would that be in the world rather than what's in the tunnel logically in the world determining how difficult the next obstacle is. Yeah, although um, in most game worlds, given that they are uh, either deliberately, as in gumshoe games, or uh, coincidentally, as in a lot of other games, meant to evoke narrative logic or dramatic logic as opposed to straight-up budget considerations um, or other real-world sorts of concerns, what is naturally going to be in the tunnel is going to be a, a threatening thing as opposed to just, well, I'm sorry, we don't have the budget to you know, make these tunnels burglar-proof, so we'll just hope no burglars crawl through them. Well, you, you would think that, but that is often implicit, uh, not explicit, in uh, rule sets, especially um, the first couple of generations of uh, rule sets. And there are definitely people who get uh, very hung up on the question of uh, how do I determine what is difficult in this situation? And you would, uh, you know, early, the, my first version of uh, Hero Quest, Hero Wars, assumed that everybody sort of had this in their uh, DNA and would be able to execute it with a lot of, without a lot of explanation. And so the current version, uh, HeroQuest 2, is the one that really digs into all of those structures and shows them to people who are used to thinking from a ground-up simulationist point of view because they don't have that in their DNA, that it's not uh, something that comes natural and it's something that there uh, has to be uh, shown explicitly just the way that we explicitly show how to have roles to determine where the treasure is or what uh, interpersonal dynamics work within this game or all the other things that we uh, provide to each other, that that isn't uh, for a lot of players the way that they're used to think, or GMs in particular, the way that they're used to thinking. Well, a lot of it is that there used to be a, 
especially in sort of the oldest of old school games, it was more of a social contract, that the dungeon was not so much a story as it was a puzzle. And yeah, if you can solve the puzzle, if you know the answer to the riddle, the confrontation of the Sphinx doesn't have any any tension, right? You're Oedipus, you show up, the Sphinx asks you a riddle, you're like, it's man! The, the answer is man! It's like, all right, fine, go on. And uh, that's that's great to establish that Oedipus is, you know, favored by the gods, but it's not actually, you know, the high point of the story, which is why, you know, none of the dramatists ever make that the story. The story is always, what happens after Oedipus gets past the Sphinx? And right, so, because puzzles are not suspenseful per se. I mean, they can be if you're if you're writing them well enough. I mean, obviously, uh, say a, mur- a murder mystery is basically a puzzle, and right. if the criminal left a fingerprint behind or the detective found it, it's like, oh, it was the guy whose fingerprint is on the murder weapon. Bam, problem solved. You know, next case. But murder mysteries are also puzzles, and that if you are reading a murder mystery, especially from the great era of Playfair murder mysteries, and you know the secret, it's. It, you know, you solve the puzzle ahead of time, and then it's just all in the prose style of the author to carry you through it. But a lot of dungeons are like that, that if you've solved the secret of that of that dungeon, if you've got that the, the right, you know, uh, combination of, of key passes or, or cheat codes or, or uh, pass-fails, you can outsmart the dungeon, and in general that also meant outsmarting the DM. And that was the reward, and so that would privilege the tactician, but because dungeons, I think, at that time were a lot faster to create, and characters were less were less robust, there was always the sense that, yeah, you won that one, but the next one's going to come around and get you. So it's no more than poker becomes a broken game if you draw, you know, into a full house and you win, then, you know, uh, in one, you know, go-around, every game of poker doesn't have to be a, a taut bluff-fest uh, because enough different parts of the experience happen over the course of a night of poker, even though every individual match may or may not be a walkover. Right. There's a, a bunch of different claw intensities, mm-hmm. uh, to return to our original metaphor, in poker. <laughs> uh, there's the skill uh, of the other players, uh, not only at uh, judging the mathematical odds of who has what hand, but also their skill in throwing you off as to what they're uh, thinking and what they're going to do. And then there's the complex randomization of the uh, card draws. Um, But anyway, at this point, I think speaking of puzzles, my big puzzle is how the heck we're going to get out of this segment. Oh, wait, I think we just did. This week's supply of Ken and Robin is also brought to you by Double Exposure's Envoy Program. Envoy is an organized play program promoting games by a veritable myriad... A verifiably veritable myriad... Of today's most happening RPG companies, including... Pelgrane Press. Arc Dream. Green Ronin. Hero Games. Pelgrane Press. Eschaton Media. Adept Press. John Wick Presents. And, of course, Pelgrane Press. Envoy connects GMs with stores and conventions to provide demos and full game sessions. To become a Herald... Not a person named Herald... But a trained GM who earns Envoy points for heralding the games you love... Check out Dexposure.com backslash Envoy for sign-up details. Join the Envoy team for Gen Con and or Origins. Or demo freely anywhere in the U.S., like some kind of Johnny Apple game. Apple's not included. That's Dexposure.com backslash Envoy... Or click the link in the proverbial show notes. Verifiably proverbial. 
The strumming of lutes and the yowling of sackbuts informs us that we have entered a particularly medieval, perhaps even heavily fortified edition of the History Hut, in which Ken is going to illuminate a corner of the late Middle Ages, and then we're going to figure out how to incorporate it into your medievalish and medievalesque and pseudo-medieval games. And that is the Vemic Courts, which were a thing in uh, Germany, or I guess proto-Germany, in the 14th to 15th centuries. Ken, can you start by explaining what a Vemic court is and why your characters probably don't want to get hauled in front of one? Okay, the Vemic courts basically grew up in the vacuum of law left by the attempt to reform the Holy Roman Empire in the 13th century. And the Holy Roman Empire began as an ungovernable morass and became worse, basically. It was always... An attempt by the by the by the Pope to cobble together a bulwark for Christendom that would listen to the Pope. And once the French kings stopped doing that, they had to turn to the German kings, who were so weak that they needed papal support to express any sort of power over the rest of Germany. The trouble, of course, being that once they became powerful enough, the Pope stopped liking them being that powerful and would then go about breaking the emperors again. So the Holy Roman Empire goes through this ongoing cycle, and as you can tell, whenever there's a weak central government. Justice, especially if justice is intentionally concentrated at the top, uh, begins to fall apart. No one can uh, try any criminals, no one can solve any cases, and basically strong jerks start taking the law into their own hands. Now, the Vemic court was an attempt to make sure that the strong jerks who took the law into their own hands were at least, at some level, responsible to the emperor. And so, in a Vemic court, you could be anyone, any uh, uh, pure-blooded German, any native German, could be on the Vemic court, but it was generally restricted to sort of uh, magistrates, nobles, people with uh, skin in the game locally, and they would run sort of an unofficial court that would have the emperor's uh, blessing because they said so. So they would show up and they would say, in the name of the emperor, you are obviously a troublemaker. Uh, we're going, we've brought a bunch of witnesses that say you're a troublemaker. We're just going to hang you from a convenient tree and move on without a lot of paperwork involved. Now, does the emperor actually know about this and, and condone it, or is it just happening in sort of a, a vacuum of his ability to direct things? Well, at the time, uh, the, the emperors were basically uh, either unaware or had no real ability to affect matters on the ground anyway. And so they're like, well, fewer you know, brigands exist, more taxes are coming in, I guess it's all right. And, you know, again, it's it's one of those... Uh, situations where the emperor has so little in terms of power over, and this is areas like Westphalia and Saxony, they're fairly far away from the imperial centers, uh, which are in more Bavaria and, and South Germany uh, than they are up in uh, the, the parts of Germany where, where the fame is strong. And so the he, he basically is like, well, as long as uh, no one is rising in riot, I guess that is a net win for me. Although the fame becomes so... Uh, prestigious, because obviously it's a great way to stay rich, is to not ever be hung by the Vame, so you join the Vame, that the Emperor himself joined the Vame uh, later on. Uh, there was, um, I think Emperor Sigismund uh, swore to um, uh, uh, uphold the Vamic courts and became an initiated Freischoffe, which basically means free judge, uh, in 1429. And I think that's the point at which, you know, you sort of have the peak of the Vame, and then it all begins to taper off A, because the emperors are more able to exert their power, and B, because the excesses start to outweigh the benefits 
of um, uh, rough justice by rich guys. And so basically this is a, a kind of an emergent phenomenon that then becomes codified to the point where it has like a membership card. Yeah. I mean, because it's Germans, they can't do anything without having, you know, a million different rules and regulations and laws, and everyone has to have a special hat and a, and a kind of a special name. Although right. it, it draws out of the original sort of uh, Germanic, uh, at least if you listen to Tacitus and why not, uh, notion that any bunch of free Germans can constitute a jury, which of course is where we get the notion that any bunch of free Americans can constitute a jury or Canadians. And so they don't, don't, don't normally sp form spontaneously and go to the house of somebody. No, though. That's the, but that, that is the difference in a civilized country versus medieval Germany. But, yes. um, uh, but the notion was that in, you know, in sort of the early, uh, Germanic war band system, Every single German warrior is as good as every other German warrior, so they can all count as a jury, they can all be a judge, they can all be an accuser, and should it come necessary, they can all be an executioner. So it's an elaborate system to make jury duty seem enticing. It would seem fun, yes. Well, well, you get to go outside, you get to hang people right there. Yeah. That's a lot more fun. There's beer afterwards. There's beer. Um, and so there's, uh, and, and a lot of these regulations are sort of put in place as attempts to formalize what would otherwise literally have just been, you know, randomized lynching. So that the, there has to be an accusation. The accusation has to be in this given format. They have to be an official vein meeting. You can't just do it as a free, you know, citizen. It's like, oh, don't worry, I did a citizen's vein on this guy. That means you broke into his house and hung him. Yep, pretty much. So <laughs> yeah. there has to be... You have to get at least six, seven other guys to yeah, break into you, his you house have and to, hang him. You know, enough, enough, of the, uh, enough of the decent folk have to agree that this guy needs a hanging before you can hang him. And there was a system where they would declare... You know, if they, if they would accuse you and try you in vain court, and if you didn't show up, then there was a system where if you're a member of the vein, you can kill him just when you see him. And then you'd, uh, you'd kill him and you'd hang him, and then you'd leave the vein dagger on the body to indicate that was a vein killing, it's not a murder, so there's no point in investigating it. Well, an awesome mur murder calling card, not many judicial systems <laughs> exactly. have that. Exactly, yeah. I mean, again... The, the the Germans have, have got a lot going on for them in terms of making the murder of strangers exciting and enticing. Right. So, there's, yeah, so that's the delightful uh, paradox here is that it's a an elaborately codified system of vigilantism. Exactly. Um, and the, vame, the word vame, intriguingly enough, may come from the same word for pig breeding. And so the notion that Grimm put forward when he wrote the dictionary of German uh, was that because the the members of the court had to be purebred Germans, that it was a court of people of breeding, which is why it was a femme gericht, although the term itself is so very, very old that no one is quite sure, and it's first used to mean vengeance as opposed to breeding. And so, therefore, you know, whether or not the homonym is a coincidence or an actual origin story is different. My favorite etymology for vem is uh, completely unsupportable, and it traces it to baum, which is to say tree, and that, therefore... Uh, it's the tree court, and it uh, it's all the druids that are doing it. Right. And also, a tree is what you might wind up swinging you from. You definitely wind up swinging from, and it's what you hold the meetings underneath. One stop uh, uh, shopping there, both the uh, the meeting and the, and the hanging. Well, that's that's how you plan a meeting. Uh, now, for uh, medieval and pseudo-medieval fantasy settings, the uh, we're often looking for uh, moments where the characters have some sort of freedom to act, not the moments in history when uh, feudalism is working really well and everybody has a place and they stick to it and that's all there is to it. But uh, So an apparently chaotic situation of soft authority seems like a promising uh, circumstance to plop your uh, player characters down into, but what sorts of things uh, might 
a, a band of uh, fantasy F-20 adventurers uh, find themselves uh, threatened with or hauled in front of an equivalent of a Vamic court for in a, a fantasy world. Well, in a fantasy world, first of all, the, if they're proper adventurers, they've gone around killing necromancers and stuff. And if the necromancer had either a cover identity as the local baron or was just the local baron and the other barons agree that you shouldn't be killing barons because it sets a bad precedent. Um, <laughs> they tend to frown on that. And so they would haul you up and say, you've killed Baron von uh, Roheim. And they say, Baron von Roheim was a necromancer. And maybe that's when the bard and the other sort of face characters get to make arguments that uh, justify their actions in front of the Vame. Or another thing you can do in a fantasy world is if it is a Baum uh, court instead of a, a pig breeding court, then the, uh, the, the Ents are the guys who are establishing full justice or the, or the high elves who are the tree lords. And so you have to impress uh, beings whose notion of justice is sort of alien and, uh, and not true to yours. And so they're not really concerned with how many barons you might or might not have killed. But what they are really concerned is, is that you brought in a cleric uh, who cast a bunch of spells of uh, fire, and uh, we're not really happy with fireballs, and we're not at all happy with uh, with what you guys were up to. And so the Vame is going to get you in trouble for basically um, uh, breaking the fire code, not necessarily killing a baron. You are charged with harming the green. Yes, an, an ant uh, court would be uh, quite tedious, although they, the transcriber of the transcript yeah had a lot of time to uh, that's that's why it would be an illuminated manuscript because he's doodling in the margins yeah right um now i guess you could also flip that on its head and have the uh characters playing nobles who are occasionally called upon to uh form a vame and go off and uh, find a necromancer uh, that gives you uh sort of interesting political struggles within the court because you know what if the person who's hauled up on charges has political influence, and so do you, and it's all part of the same group, and there, that's where you would get uh, the horse trading, and you would also get just sort of the adventure bit of looking for the guy, finding where he is, capturing him, and uh, and bringing him back. Are there other Vame-related uh, story seats we can uh, draw out of this? Well, there can be the one where the characters are... They might be hired by the Vame to go into the neighboring duchy and drag a guy back to the Vame court, or they might be hired by the Vame... Just as sort of general, and this is how you generate a lot of your wandering necromancers. Is the, the the barons, the local vam, recognize that the characters are really good at slaughtering strangers unaware, and so they're like, "Well, we produce a number of people who need slaughtering through the machinery of justice." So they give the characters uh, vam daggers so that when they kill targets of the vam, they can just leave the vam dagger and get away with it. And then that sort of puts it in the lap of the player characters to say, "Well, if we kill a guy." that the Vame didn't order dead, and we leave the Vame dagger by him, and the Vame proceedings are secret, I wonder how many of these we could get away with. And so it's it's like, you know, the hundred bullets, right? You give the the player characters some number of free murders and see what they get up to. And, and I think that could be a great deal of fun as well. Right, because I guess what we haven't emphasized so much, you just said it now, is that the proceedings were secret. Yeah, right. Uh, so uh, you had to be in the Vame to attend the, the meeting, uh, at which the uh, it was determined that somebody should be snuffed and have a dagger put on him. But if you're just, uh, you know, Joe uh, Freeman, you uh, see your brother lying there in the street with a vein dagger in him, and you don't know what the accusation was. You don't know. Uh, you assume that it was the actual quasi authority of this highly codified vigilante group. But uh, in uh, a game setting, another option could be 
you know, one of your uh, sort of favorite foil helper characters is found dead with a vein dagger on him, and you have no idea uh, why. It, and then you have to sort of investigate, knowing that if it really was a Vamic court, that all of the people who did this are sort of kind of authorized or at least powerful enough to uh, claim that uh, as being the case. Um, so, you, you know, was it a real murder or was it, you know, the other side of that, let's kill somebody and leave a vein dagger on him and see what, uh, uh, if we get away with it or not. And I guess another story thread would be uh, somebody shows up dead with a vein dagger on him. You're the vein at court. You know, you didn't order him snuffed. So you assign the player characters to go and find out who is impersonating the vein. Yes, which I'm I'm sure is a hanging offense. <laughs> yeah. As as are so many offenses, it turns out, when all you've got is a tree. <laughs> you can either have a hanging offense or a run him into a tree offense, I guess, would be the other one. That's the misdemeanor. Um yeah, the other thing that you can do, I think, is yeah, I, I like the notion that you're uh investigating whether or not this was a vein killing. The notion that the Vamic court itself can start out, you know, and the player characters are helping it, and they're and it's ridding the, the land of necromancers, and it's keeping all the peasants happy, and you can sort of do in miniature the natural, uh, you know, corruption of, of of this sort of political entity, but you can present in a in a fantasy world that it's being corrupted by uh, demons or by shape shifting uh, monsters or some other thing that. The members of the vein begin by doing good and hanging only bad witches and, and bad necromancers, but now they're hanging kind of druids, and, and it's like, well, we're not druids, I guess we're okay with that, and now they're going to start hanging clerics of some other faith, and maybe they're hanging a nice old lady who just had property that they wanted to take, and you're wondering, well, is it human corruption? In which case, we're gonna, it's going to be harder for us to go after it, or, as is so often the case, is it demons? And then you get to sort of look at the fall of the vein as a story option, and maybe it's a mix. Maybe the paladin is all, always assumed to be in the vein, and the vein is like, hey, we're meeting to hang some guys who are going to come along, paladin. But of course, it's they're got to be righteous. We have a paladin. We got a paladin, and they wouldn't obviously assume that of the thief, who's probably not even German, and they certainly don't assume it of, of probably the elves or whatever. But and so you can have a thing where some of the party is sort of in the vein, and as long as they stay copacetic and keep their heads down. They're not going to get caught up in the in the frenzy, and so then it's that sort of, what do you do as you see your 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 shire or your barony beginning to fall into into the shadow of evil? Do you act against that local problem? Do you go find the dark lord and throw away his ring and hope that fixes things? You know what? Uh, at what point do you start scouring your own personal shire? I guess, and I think that could be a a fun sort of thing, especially if you've got a really good detailed part of the fantasy world that you want to really burrow down. And talk about the, uh, the the politics and and the interrelated you know land tenure and things in a way that isn't boring because it's all about secret hangings and possible demons. Um, another thought is that if there is a special dagger that is the signature of the vein, yes, it's carved with the letters S S G G. By the way, in case you want to make one yourself and and leave it on your next murder. Uh, well, that brings up the question of you know there must be someone who has the uh, franchise to produce official vein daggers. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a. An, favored uh, weaponsmith, and what happens if he comes to uh, the adventuring party, because of course uh, every adventuring party is pals with a weaponsmith, especially at low levels, and uh, <laughs> he says, uh, well, I was working on, uh, there was a break-in, 
at my uh, shop last night, and uh, one of the Vame daggers was stolen. So it could just be someone who collects Vame daggers, but that seems unlikely. It looks like there might be an attempt to commit a murder and uh, disguise it as a Vame murder, and that way you're conducting the investigation before uh, the killing has occurred, and you're trying to find out who stole the dagger and, and get led that way to the uh, the culprit and maybe even successfully stop them from uh, murdering somebody who you at first don't know who it is, but later you discover that it's someone who you uh, care about and don't want to see uh, uh, murdered. And so that gives you sort of a cool uh, murder investigation before the murder has actually occurred that you might actually have a chance to stop. Yeah. Um, another thing I guess we should mention is that although the Vame officially ended in 1811, when Jaume Bonaparte said, oh, please, um, and uh, just as king of Westphalia and the guy who had all those troops in Westphalia could actually stop it, did so. But then it was sort of maybe a little bit revived by the Nazis and the proto-Nazis, the Freikorps, when they would go around and kill uh, Jewish politicians primarily, but pretty much anyone that they wanted to kill. And there was sort of a sense... In the, in the way that the Nazis would uh, take over the traditional symbols of evil and danger and outlawry and try and make them cool uh, like the werewolves. And so they would say, hey, maybe we're the fame. Maybe that's what's going on. And they'd sort of put that out and see if anyone liked it. And then you can have your modern-day uh, evil uh, conspiracy, whoever they are, they can be a fame, or, as your alternative, the fame can actually be the good guys who are going around and Still, they're killing necromancers and bad barons, but you know they're you know they have to d disguise the deaths as um, uh, as other stuff. And you turn up the fact that the Vame went underground in 1811. They weren't ever extirpated by Jerome Bonaparte, and now they've been trying to you know kill Hitler like 40 times in the 30s, and they tried to kill a bunch of other guys. And maybe they're the guys that tipped off the Israelis about Eichmann, and maybe they're the guys that you know drowned Mengele on that beach in Brazil or whatever else, right? That they've got some sort of Vame action going on and. You in the modern day have to say, well, I don't like necromancers, but I also don't like secret murder tribunals, and use that as a as a modern day metaphor for all the secret stuff that governments or are doing, or perhaps pseudo governments are doing uh, without our knowledge, right? And we could also put this in the future because Pelgrane's uh, space opera game Ash and Stars is also set in a, an area of uh, loose collapsed authority. Mm -hmm. You as the player characters are. Uh, uh, justice makers for hire. So you could run into a uh, rival group who don't have the same ethics that you do, who are, uh, you know, reviving the vein with uh, super space technology. And so, you know, maybe they've got a, uh, a dagger that they, uh, a, sort of a holographic yeah. tattoo that they mm -hmm. leave on their victims. Yeah. And uh, you're trying to extract someone from a planet ruled by a vein like, uh, vigilante justice system. Or the Vame could be your sort of frenemy guys, like um, uh, sometimes they're helping you out because you're both chasing the same bad guy, and sometimes you have to steal a guy away from them because you want the bounty, and sometimes they're actually going after an innocent man and you have to protect him. You know, not so much that it's a one-off planet, but they're like your sort of, uh, you know, dark shadow belloc uh, lasers that are going along. They're your foil characters. Exactly. And then, of course, we can't be talking about interstellar justice uh, beyond the reach of the law without talking about gay and reach. You have to have an idea for how the Vame can show up in, in the gay and reach, if only that they are one of the people who are interfering with your attempt to hunt down Quandos Vorn, but maybe Quandos has got the Vame, 
you know, activated and going after you? What else can the Vein be doing in the magical world of the Guy in Reach, Robin? Uh, well, the, the Guy in Reach is, of course, a, a place where uh, bureaucracy and lassitude uh, run riot. Mm -hmm. So uh, you could really up the idea of the uh, procedures and codifications and uh, Teutonic order that has been uh, revived in a new vein. And basically, most of your time is spent uh, filling out paperwork and doing applications and making sure that all of your petitions are made to the right members of the VAIM, and then you show up at the VAIMIC court. You have to get a quorum. Concerned about, yeah. you know, first they have to establish who has the best hat. And so uh, in this case, you are trying to reactivate a vein that has fallen into uh, decrepitude and uh, <laughs> concerns. Oh, oh, a winter, uh, a winter saga vein. I like right. that. So yeah. they're perfectly willing to, uh, they agree that Quandos Vorn should be killed, uh, but they're putting all of these procedural obstacles in front of you because the procedures have become much more important to them than the ends. Right. And so uh, they are uh, obstacles to your uh, moving forward that you must uh, defeat in true Vancean uh, verbal fashion, and the uh, and the the people have recognized that you're the 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 guys who are actually going to sort of move the the vam off the dime, and so they want to tack all of their ridiculous personal quests onto yours. So it's like, well, before that, we have to make sure that the daggers are correctly sourced before we can have a vam, and so you have to solve our dagger problem on yes. the planet with the molybdenum mines or whatever. And before you tackle Quandos Four, mm -hmm. there's this. Uh, we need you to demonstrate your ability to follow procedures. So there's these uh, strange, degenerate uh, former humans who have occupied our uh, salt marshes where these valuable weeds are grown. And, uh, you know, of course, it's a coincidence that we are all members of the Saltweed Consortium. But before you uh, tackle Quantos Born and we give you the equipment and information needed to do that, we need you to go in and take care of the uh, the occupiers of the of our salt flats mm -hmm. because uh, the salt bandits. You know, it's, it's just yeah, it's just a justice. It's mm -hmm. got nothing. You know, yeah. it's not a conflict of interest. It's in the interest of the entire planet that the consortium be strong because without a strong consortium, the the, the Vamic court is weak. Exactly. Then then anarchy is unloosed. Well, I think that having gone from the murky Teutonic uh, past of Tacitus to the exciting murky future of Jack Vance, we perhaps have reached the very boundaries of Vamic secrecy, and to avoid a hanging, should probably leave our daggers behind and slink off into the next hut. of IBM Selectric Keys, the gurgle of bourbon, and the occasional cursing as one looks things up in the Oxford English Dictionary tells us that we have entered once more the hut wherein we learn the goodness of how we write, that is to say, how to write good. And Robin, today in How to Write Good, we're going to talk not so much about the persnickety details of comma placement and word choice, but the larger questions of who the hell thought that was a good idea? And which specific terrible uh, good idea are you uh, exercised with at, at the moment? Well, I, I'm going to try and uh, illuminate uh, some sort of principles of uh, series construction and iconic heroes through the window of uh, one of the weirdest developments in uh, TV development I've heard in a long time. So uh, 
as you may have heard, uh, Fox TV is developing a series based around Lucifer, um, but not just any Lucifer, because of course uh, he is uh, the, the greatest lie he ever told us was convincing us he was in the public domain. Mm -hmm. But this is Neil Gaiman's Lucifer, as seen originally in uh, Sandman comics, and then spun off, I think, later into his own title. Um, but they're going to make it a police procedural. Because when you think Lucifer, that's what you think. Right. Or particularly when you think Neil Gaiman's <laughs> yes. the DC Comics Lucifer. So um, it, it seems like a very odd choice, but you can easily imagine how that would happen in the world of TV development. Because uh, we see that, you know, the current Batman series that's on TV was clearly pitched to Fox as it's a police procedural uh, set in Gotham City, where I think really the producers want to make Boardwalk Empire set in Gotham City. And <laughs> there's an internal tension between those and, two and, structures. And, 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 and whoever was being pitched thought they were just getting Smallville only with Batman. R right. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I'm sure when they said police procedural, that was uh, an exciting thing because that's still those shows still make a boatload of money and there's mm -hmm. a ton of them new ones every year. And easy to syndicate. Easy to syndicate. So I thought that we would uh, take this uh, sort of peculiar idea and try to uh, do it well with our own examples of uh, famous uh, characters from uh, myth or earlier fiction and how we would recast them into a police procedural. So what are the elements you need? You need uh, a way of melding your classic character who has not previously uh, been a uh, police officer or solver of mysteries. So it's for the purpose of this exercise, it's cheating to say Perot. Yeah, right. He yeah. already serves mysteries. He basically, is a police procedural. Um, but uh, so the example I'm going to start off with, and then we'll just hit each other with uh, different characters, and then we'll try and come, and the other one will try and come up with a way to do it as a police procedural, is uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde. So if you're to invent, and let's also stipulate that these are all modern day right. uh, yeah. police procedurals. Like, like elementary is. Right. Yeah. And so. Although that, that's an example actually of a character that began sort of as a police procedural, becoming even more proce police procedurally uh, in the in the process of being brought to CBS, right? Sherlock Holmes is sometimes a policier, but sometimes, you know, a meditation on sin, sometimes a, an adventure story. Uh, Holmes is all kinds of different stories, generally wrapped around a mystery, but the elementary Holmes, which I very much like, is very much a police procedural story, right? Right. And an even clearer example is Sleepy Hollow, which is mm -hmm. Ichabod Crane, police procedural. Right. So <laughs> if we uh, look at Jekyll and Hyde, I'm going to suggest that Dr. Jekyll is the detective in this one. This is going to be one of those ones where uh, let's stick with the uh, storyline and make him a medical examiner. So it's going to be sort mm -hmm. of a CSI, uh, Quincy uh, sort of zone. And uh, his... Uh, other dark side, and I'm sure this would be, you know, the result this time of some sort of genetic experiment. And we're going to uh, also, I think, specify in this instance that he is played by two different actors. So that right. uh, Hyde uh, is a, a different actor than Jekyll, and this allows them to interact. So that when, uh, rather than having a partner character, we probably also have a partner character who's sort of trying to keep... Jekyll sane and on, on the light side. Mary Riley, no doubt. Yeah, and probably an attractive young uh, actress who uh, does not look like a police officer. Mm -hmm. But while he's on a crime scene, uh, Jekyll uh, sees and can, in his mind's eye, talk to Hyde, who is always uh, psychologically within him. And so a lot of the dialogue is between uh, Jekyll and Hyde, and they are solving the case together, even though uh, 
at first Hyde is just sort of Snuffleupagus. Nobody, but right. uh, Jekyll sees him. So with his uh, medical knowledge and his psychological understanding of uh, sort of madness, pure and evil, split, yeah. yes, and the his sort of iconic ethos. Any any iconic recurring character has a way that they reimpose order on the world and complete their tasks and solve mysteries. And so the quick way of explaining his iconic ethos is that he understands that everybody has a dark side. And so that illuminates the way that he talks to witnesses and he finds people's uh, dark uh, elements, their, their internal hides, or hide helps to point them out. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how he solves his cases. And he's good cop and bad cop in one cop. Exactly so. Right. That's probably a pretty good interrogation scene every now and again in our uh, Jekyll Hyde police procedural, right? Yeah. And uh, then... As Sweeps approaches, uh, Hyde could begin to, uh, who has been suppressed, we get a sense that something ha terrible happened in the past that uh, Dr. Jekyllis successfully uh, covered up. But then, uh, you know, when we uh, get to Sweeps, Hyde actually comes out to play, and that uh, develops through the course of the series, and that gives you your uh, big grand story arc that develops, uh, you know, if, if our show gets picked up for multiple seasons, uh, the... Uh, fact that Hyde occasionally uh, slips free and becomes actual again uh, becomes more and more a part of the storyline. Yeah, because Jekyll has been tra has been following this uh, occasional serial killer, and as he finds more and more clues, it becomes more and more clear to Jekyll that this might be Hyde doing it. And Jekyll thought that he had like a perfect way to solve whether or not Hyde ever did anything on his own, but it turns out there's a hole in it of whatever kind. Yes, and the first time he does, you know, and there's early indications where he's worried that he did something and he just... And, you know, he discovers he's not the one who done it, and then mm -hmm. there's the, you know, when you're far enough along in this series, he has. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, throw an example at you and uh, see what you can do with it. So Wendy from Peter Pan as a police procedural character. Uh, Wendy Darling as a police procedural character. Okay. Um, Wendy is, uh, in, in, she's in modern day uh, London, obviously, and she has uh, sort of her... Uh, extended family, uh, who are, um, all sort of, you know, the brothers that she has. She has, I forget how many damn brothers she has, but like a million of them. But they're all in various other sorts of positions. And so she can call on them, kind of like the Shadow can call on his, his, uh, team, or, um, uh, Sherlock Holmes can call on his irregulars. And she is a, a, a police officer because that's just what she is. And she has her, um, sort of irregular sources. And no doubt the writers have her reach out to them all the goddamn time. But did you just say reach out? I, I did. I said that the writers will do that. Um, they will, <laughs> okay. Because just to be clear. Yes. And she's going to be, uh, I put it in quotes. Uh, and, uh, and, I, okay. I just and, wanted, I just wanted the listeners to, to hear the quotes. To hear the quotes. Okay. And as we go forward in the story, we begin to recognize that one of the characters that she is always talking to is actually Peter Pan, right? Is an undying immortal character from Neverland who shows up and has a very strange sort of, he's sort of like, he begins sort of like, um, uh, like, like angel. He's sort of like a secondary character who may or may not show up a great deal, but then it becomes more and more apparent that Wendy and gets more and more of her insights and, 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 and really weird help from Peter. And then what the question is, is, is it a love interest? Is Peter like a demon? Is what's what's going on with Peter? What's 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 his story? And so that he's not becomes still a our kid. Big... He's a he's a hunky potential. Yeah, love no, interest. he's he's like he's a he's a he's a CW kid. He's like played by a hot twenty two year old actor. Um, and so they uh, and then they have um, uh, 
uh, Peter Pan uh, becomes the this sort of character, and then you know maybe at some point people realize, hey, we never see Peter interact with Wendy with any other character, and so now we don't even know what what Peter might be. And so uh, the the story, the the arc, the way that you sell it to the network is uh, Wendy solves mysteries. Uh, Wendy Darling uh, solves all all the mysteries except for the greatest mystery of her life, and the mystery is what's going on with Peter, and so it can become a Beauty and the Beast thing, or it can go any other sorts of different ways. And then meanwhile, the kinds of crimes that she's solving in London become sort of stranger and stranger as bits of Neverland are sort of filtering out into the... So there's a, a gang that are all pirates for some odd reason, or people who... Um, uh, Commit a series of killings made to look like uh, Native Americans because she would, of course, go to the land of the of the Red Indians in in the Peter Pan play, and then eventually it becomes apparent that there is a sort of criminal underworld or cult known as the Lost Boys that are out there doing stuff, and that sort of like this that sets off our second season arc is that she's figuring out okay, Peter Pan is actually not just appearing to me; he has some other existence and. Does he love me or does he love the Lost Boys? And that's the big question. So it's a it's a romantic police procedural, right? And every show like this needs a recurring ser- serial killer, mm-hmm. uh, and this one, of course, would be the Hook. The Hook, right? Yes, exactly. And so I think with that with that mythos, you can sort of keep going. And then Wendy Darling, as she is in the play, is actually sort of the source of rationality and grown upness. And so that's why she is the cop, and she is bringing rationality to an insane world, and the world is more insane than you know because it contains within it Neverland. Right, and uh, Wendy in the uh, in the plays and the other adaptations is sort of the civilizing figure who keeps mm-hmm. her uh, her brothers together, and she succeeds by making sure that there's harmony uh, between uh, them and that they all stay sensible. And so that could be her sort of iconic ethos is that she um, she's bringing her imposing her common sense on an increasingly crazy world and on her fractious a brood of uh, brothers uh, slash investigative assistants. And then at the, at the sort of the, um, uh, one of the big, uh, uh, you know, sweeps weak turns, you get introduced Tinkerbell, who's played by another hot actress. And now no one knows what's going on. And because she could be any, she could have an agenda of trying to release Peter from this civilizing influence of Wendy. So they're sort of rivals, but also she has magic powers and sometimes helps Wendy solve crimes. So it's all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, and she's a crazy badass. Uh, exactly. Right. And she probably wears a corset for no reason, like a lot of characters do. So pretty exciting. Okay. Hit me with an example. Hit you with a ridiculous example of a, um, uh, of a character. All right. Let's see. Um, let's do Achilles from the uh, Trojan War. Let, let's turn that into a police procedural. Achilles from the Trojan War and the police procedural. So he's the, uh, the hero with the secret vulnerability that mm-hmm. he's... Uh, sort of a secret wound that's going to bring him down. Uh, so I guess that you do kind of... Torn by anger and pride, all about his uh, his, his uh, reputation. Right. So this is going to be uh, a sort of a SWAT team uh, police procedural Ooh, uh, show. I like that. So th- his other allies in the Trojan War are represented by the other uh, guys on his uh, bus down the door in the, uh, in the Mean Streets uh, squad. And so this is more sort of a tactical-oriented... Uh, show and it's about uh, and it's uh, about him balancing his pride and his anger against his uh, quest for justice. So it's like the uh, I guess it's sort of the uh, shield, except the lead character here instead of being uh, utterly corrupt is 
sometimes undone by his own uh, uh, fury and rage and needs to be uh, reined in. And so he's always coming through the door. And in his Achilles heel, in this case, would have to be uh, not literal, although probably he uh, is in physiotherapy because he, um, you know, injured his foot in the big incident that uh, led him to become head of the squad at the beginning of the, the series. And so his, uh, you know, sort of uh, contrasting relationship is with his uh, uh, foxy physiotherapist, who's uh, always sort of counseling him to uh, uh, make the smart play and to keep a cool head and is encouraging him to meditate. So he succeeds by uh, controlling his anger properly and, and focusing it uh, in the right direction. And we discover over time that, the, you know, his real uh, weakness is something that he did during that incident that was uh, less than the guy that he wanted to be, that he doesn't want to have resolved. And so the uh, uh, recurring bad guy in this one, who would be a gang leader rather than a serial killer, because it's this kind of show, uh, has something on him, and he has to uh, keep uh, working and charging forward and, and hope that the Achilles heel never gets jabbed. And so the, uh, the, the, the gang leader is the effeminate and effete Paris, not the badass Hector, who is sort of the street soldier that he respects more than any other guy on the street, right? Yeah, he'd, yeah. he'd be part of the squad. Well, I, I think Hector would be like a, a, a gangbanger, a bad guy, but he, he lives by a, a criminal code, right? He's like um, uh, Forrest Whitaker in, in Ghost Dog, right? Right. Yeah. Um, also, uh, my, my only question about this now is, is Odysseus uh, just the tactical uh, plan guy on the SWAT team? Or is he like the uh, lieutenant uh, back at the, the headquarters who gets them into trouble but never seems to be coming along when it when it gets hardcore? Because he has marital problems and right, yeah. uh, his, uh, he's worried that his wife is cheating on him. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, the gods who come down to periodically uh, interfere with things are the uh, higher-ups in the uh, big city police department who are completely right, yeah. political and view them uh, just as pawns in a big power struggle so that when it... You know, macros. They're like out. the city council with Mayor Zeus and um, uh, council councilor Aphrodite is in favor of the, the the Trojans. She thinks that they're misunderstood youths who just need more midnight basketball programs. But um, uh, councilor Athena is all like you know law and order and, and crush them all with uh, with with uh, the big uh, uh, you know armored cars and stuff. Right, and uh, I don't know what the uh, what the Trojan horse equivalent would be if it's uh, some sort of cyber crime element or. Uh, that uh, or it's an um, it's an undercover operation. Yeah, it's right? an undercover that, sting, right? Yeah. So uh, so Hector actually in this case could actually be uh, deep undercover, but yeah, it's not, and he's it's and he's known as the Trojan Horse, right? We know that they have a guy inside, but we don't know who it is. Yeah. Right. It could be Hector. It could be any of these guys that we've met, met in in the Trojans gang, right? There we go. Yeah. So pretty that's strong. how you uh, take all of those time honored elements with a bunch of other time honored uh, elements and then mush them together. Uh, and uh, I would actually rather, uh, I have higher hopes for any of the three shows that we've outlined uh, <laughs> than I do for uh, Fox's Lucifer. But Well, uh, after all, Robin, we did talk about it for nearly 12 minutes, so that makes it obviously more time than anyone spent talking about <laughs> Fox's Lucifer. Yes, now, it could come out and be brilliant and, and we'll, we'll look foolish. But, well, we'll uh, look like idiots then. Uh, but then you can always win at the claw machine, too, right. so what do you know? The creaky cobweb stairs that lead us up under the portrait of a glowering at Madame Blavatsky and then through the doorway into 
a quaintly appointed parlor with a creaky leather chair inform us that we have once again come to our bi-weekly or tri-weekly or whatever it is appointment with the consulting occultist and this time around he's going to help us out with a uh, long requested segment that's been uh, sitting on our request pile for a long time uh, bryant Durrell asked us to talk about rudolf steiner so he's one of those figures who um, kind of straddles the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th and he represents sort of the last period where you could be a crazy polymath and an expert in 12 different things uh, three of them occultic and uh, other ones that cross over into uh, just regular uh, standard uh, ordinary reality and also one of those figures who kind of encapsulates the sense of possibility and change and positive ferment uh, that developed during that era until it runs smack dab against the horrors of uh, World War One and uh, and beyond. Uh, he lived long enough to uh, enter uh, Hitler's radar during Hitler the early years. Um, so there's so many uh, things about this guy that we could cover. So I guess the thing I'm going to start off with is just a, a basic chronology of who. Uh, Rudolf Steiner was and uh, what his various pies were that he had fingers in spiritually and otherwise. Okay. Um, Rudolf Steiner is uh, basically he's born in relatively happy circumstances, uh, sort of uh, not aristocracy, but servants, prime servants of the aristocracy sort of family. Um, I think his dad becomes the station master at a, at a railroad station eventually, but he began as a gamekeeper to a noble. So he's literally moving from the antique Germany to the modern Germany in his own family as well as in his lifetime. And so he grows up um, and has some early spiritualistic experiences. He is visited by the spirit of his aunt. He begins to think that his own spiritual development has to be carried out in the same sort of mathematical process that all knowledge has to be carried out. And that leads him, I believe, then to attempting to uh, unify or to find uh, a application for rational thought for science into the works of the spirit, which for Steiner also included the arts as well as you know ghosts and and uh, and and, and oversouls and such. And right. The key word here is holistic. Yes, exactly. Everything is all thrown up by irrational forces and 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 irrational uh, energies. Uh, these energies are innate in not just an individual person, but in their race, uh, so the white race and the yellow race and the brown race all have their own spirit energies. Uh, their uh, nationality has its own energy. Genders all have energies. Everything has these energies, and you then can rationally apply n the knowledge and structure of Western thinking to these irrational energies and create a better way to live. So he's, uh, you know, I guess at bottom he's a philosopher, but he is an occult philosopher because he believes that these energies are, um, I don't want to say external, but they are, but but they are not uh, created by pure reason. That they are fundamentally forces that must be reckoned with, as opposed to uh, mathematical quantities. Even though he wants to approach them all as mathematical quantities, because that's the only way to productively move forward, and it's the only way to move forward in the arts as well. The only way to move forward in everything. And he, as he's applying uh, rationality to the occult, he is also applying the occult to uh, uh, rationality, and so that's why he is interested in things like um, experimental farming and changing the way that people educate. And he says, if you're educating uh, children in a way that runs contrary to their natural uh, spirit energy, you're going to screw everything up. So work with their spirit energy, and he created 
what I guess is now called Waldorf education, but it's sort of, you know, that, um, it's one of many new models of education that are coming out, um, during the late 19th, early 20th century, Montessori and John Dewey and the rest of those guys are all basically having the same sort of thing. Right. And, and a huge contrast to the, the very codified, uh, you know, throughout the Western world, education is super codified and road oriented, but this is Germany. So mm. he's really, uh, upending, the, the conceptual framework there. Right, yeah. And he's all about social reform also because he believes that everyone's um, spirits are important and you have to sort of work everything into a harmonious whole and not suppress some of it versus the other part of it. And so he is all about, you know, social reform. He believes that everyone should sort of um, figure out what is the, the natural uh, role that they should be playing in society and society therefore hasn't uh, responsibility to figure out what is uh, that person's best contribution and support it. And so it's sort of uh, socialism in uh, in the in, in the less mathy way, uh, I guess, than, than sort of your pure uh, Marx type it's, uh, stuff. It's is. magical socialism. It's magical socialism. And so I guess it would fall, fall in that murky middle ground between Nazism, which is uh, a socialism of a, of a different order, and Marxism, which is just, you know, sort of um, uh, a more straightforwardy ultra-socialism, and it would be um, it would be that, uh, that occult-minded theosophical socialism. And what he eventually, uh, once he sort of synthesized enough of the spiritual science into a way of living and a way of thinking, he called that anthroposophy, uh, and so which would, of course, be the wisdom of man. And uh, he then applied anthropos anthroposophical principles to exercise and to diet and to medicine and to architecture and to everything else. And so he created um, an attempt to sort of unify all the arts in what he called the Goetheanum, because he thought that Goethe uh, was the guy before him who basically knew all the arts and knew everything about it. And, you know, on the merits is probably not super wrong. Uh, he built a lot of um, sort of Goetheanums of varying degrees of, uh, of awesomeness. And I think the last one burned down eventually because he built them out of wood because it was more nature-y. Um, and so they, they did have a tendency to burn down. Right. He had thoughts on architecture as well. Yes, yes, very much so. Definitely within your remit. Mm -hmm. And so what was his uh, approach to architecture? His approach to architecture is basically he wants uh, his architecture, first of all, to be sort of in in harmony with the land. So he's got that sort of uh, Frank Lloyd Wrighty approach. I think he is more about domes and spheres and less about planes than Wright, but that may be because he grew up in the hilly country of, of central Germany as opposed to the great plains of the Midwest. And uh, your natural sense of what a natural form is is going to change depending on what you see around you all the time. Right, and domes are uh, holistic as opposed to uh, skyscrapers, mm -hmm. which are uh, hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And so he, he wants the buildings to reemphasize this sense of, of unity and unification. They're more open plan. There's not a lot of interior uh, design uh, necessarily, not interior design, but interior uh, walls and things like that. But a lot of his architectural renderings are impractical because he is, again, I, I don't think engineering is his strong point. And so they wind up being judged more as artistic uh, expressions than they do actual buildings that he got. And of course, he didn't work as an architect. So the only things he ever architected his own self were his Gertianums, his Gertiana, whatever they are, his, his uh, big uh, centers for anthroposophic study. And those, um, uh, most, as I say, mostly burned down. And so the, uh, 
uh, although there are architects that were influenced by Steiner, I don't think that there is a anthroposophic school of architecture that ever really took off, uh, not least because there were so many other things that he was doing. I mean, He also developed a, a, a dance movement form called Eurythmics. Uh, hence the Eurythmics. They uh, took yes. their, their name from uh, Steiner, so already they're good. And uh, in addition to his dance, the dance movements were supposed to inform the performance of theater, and theater was also supposed to express anthroposophic truths. Uh, he wrote a play um, called, I believe, The Guardian of the Threshold, which is about uh, people arguing about philosophy and as, as exciting as it sounds. Um, <laughs> but I, I suspect that part of what was supposed to make that play work is the costuming and the set design and the movements of the actors in the space. Uh, like we talked about Gurdjieff, the notion that uh, physical movement is part of an occult discipline. I think that for Steiner, you maybe kind of want to flip that and say occult discipline is part of physical move movement. And that once you understand both of those things, it's not that one is the other, that they're both part of the holistic whole. So in a campaign that is the um, magical secret history of the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, uh, he's definitely on the on the light side of uh, a magician. So he's, uh, you know, if you're playing a character influenced by his thought, you're one of the good guys and you're... By and uh, large, yes, although yeah. he is a 19th century thinker and therefore you can certainly find um, some fairly odious racial uh, undertones and occasionally overtones in what he said, although he wasn't an anti-Semite uh, and thought anti-Semites were horrible people. He also believed that the best thing for Jews was to assimilate into the successful culture of Western industrial Christianity and not... So he was not a Zionist, for example. He didn't believe that Jews should have their own country or even their own neighborhoods or even their own anything uh, because obviously they were of this ancient biblical past and needed to, you know, get with the oversoul and, and move on. So you can look at that and say, that's iffy, but compared to what lots of other people are doing in Germany at the same time, it's not nearly as iffy as other occultists around him. Right. And does his work have any of the sort of uh, uh, eugenics slant to it that uh, mars the uh, progressive movement? I elsewhere? don't think that he ever really goes into eugenics, although I don't necessarily know that one or the other. I mean, he is all about, you know, breeding animals uh, as part of, uh, and, and plants as part of agriculture. So... I don't know that he ever said eugenics is bad and wrong. But he's trying to perfect you through uh, dance and attunement to the uh, natural forces. And, and he also uh, didn't believe, for example, in euthanizing or sterilizing people who had uh, uh, a mental illness or disability, right? He thought that what people who were mentally ill or were developmentally disabled needed was just the right architecture. And then if they lived in that, then they could be contributing their part to the world. So he's not about, you know, going out and, you know, getting rid of all the useless eaters the way that uh, the, the eugenicists were by and large. So, you know, even if he's a eugenicist, he's a really soft eugenicist. He's not out there trying to uh, get the lower orders to stop breeding the way that uh, Margaret Sanger or someone is. Uh, so uh, within the social context, portraying him as essentially a, a good guy with uh, some thoughts that were of his mm -hmm. time rather than ours, I think, kind of works. And so as... Uh, the characters you are learning to manipulate these basic natural forces and abstract concepts and uh, your flowing dance moves in order to uh, bring uh, the power of these abstractions uh, into reality and make uh, a change in the world. And uh, your enemies would be... Hitler. Nazis, right? I mean, you're in Germany running around uh, helping out uh, Rudolf Steiner, so the bad guys are the people who are taking this same theosophical approach to the world and 
you know, just somehow getting all the wrong answers about the great white brotherhood that wants us to uh, move on as a race. Right. Uh, so we've uh, well covered the Nazi occultism <laughs> yes. in the past, so you can refer yourself to the uh, Nazi occult uh, series uh, we did when you brought up mm-hmm. the Nazi occult uh, book for Osprey for uh, inspiration for that. And he uh, dies in the 20s. Mm-hmm. 1925, so he, uh, so he doesn't ever yeah. have to answer any really hard questions. Or, or uh, <laughs> you know, witness the, the horror of uh, Hitler's rise to mm-hmm. power. So are there uh, other gameable little nuggets that you want to mine before we uh, uh, head on off into the uh, ether? I think that one of the things that, I, I, weirdly enough, I don't necessarily want to do story about Steiner. First of all, because I find Steiner just stultifyingly boring to read. Um, I've got four or five. He's another one of these earnest good guys. Oh God, yes, and it's. I mean, Blavatsky. At least you know, whenever you're about to drop off, she'll bring Atlantis back into it, and that'll keep you awake. But Steiner is just so, so, so very sleep making, um, and it's just very hard to read uh, seriously. And he's not even crazy good like Swedenborg, who is also boring, but is at least boringly crazy. Uh, Steiner, Steiner is just earnest and. And he's like um, uh, someone who's, you know, telling you about his dog forever um, and without pictures. So the uh, the thing that I think you want to do mechanically, though, is if you are going to be Steinerian mages or Steinerian uh, followers who are working with Steiner and getting his powers, the important thing is that you can never have one magical skill that gets ahead of your other skills. So... You have to, and the GM has to work to make your art and dance and other skills not utterly useless, so that it's just ah uh, time serving while I get more magic. But you can't ever get too ahead, and I think that that might be an interesting sort of uh, philosophical bunch of bad guys, not just Nazis, but also that you are going after Gurdjieff guys who are really all about the dance and movement and don't know about architecture and don't have the concern for education and, and eating natural foods, or you're going only against natural food cultists who are getting all their power from, you know, graham crackers and none of their power from proper <laughs> dance, right? And so that you are, as Steiner, you're not just fighting bad, wrong-thought Nazis. You're also fighting people who don't understand that the world is a holistic whole, right? That you're fighting guys who might or might not be, you know, begin in the right move. And like we were talking about how a lot of these guys get uh, moved into anti-Semitism or moved into eugenics, that, you know, they followed the path of natural foods, which is all good, but they followed it too far. And now they're like, now we have to get rid of all the people so that only grain can grow or whatever. <laughs> right. And and so part of your Steinerian game is that your character has to remain fully capable of engaging in architectural combat with the hyper um, uh, with, with the hyper natural foods guys, but also having naturopathic powers against the, the super architects who only want to design the, the perfect building uh, that will be the microcosmos from which they can manipulate the world or whatever, right? Now, are there any sort of colorful, crazy people in Steiner's orbit who would make a more interesting PC than Steiner himself? <laughs> I think anyone makes a more interesting PC than Steiner himself. Um, let's see. He's got... Um, there's a number of people who sort of take one or another bit of Steiner seriously. There's uh, there, there's not a lot of... I mean, the, the part of the thing is once you really sort of, you know... Because uh, if you sh- want to be crazy during this period, yeah, there are a whole there lot are of tons other people of them. To go and be crazy with. Yeah, and then the thing is, if you really get into, um, if you really get into Steiner, then part of your your goal is to not be exciting anymore, right? You want to sort of be going with the flow and everything. It, it's like you're asking, you know, how many exciting hippies are there? And unless they're out levitating the Pentagon, not a, not a lot, because the whole point of being a hippie is to not go out and do exciting things. Um, so I think that. Uh, with Steiner, you have to have 
Um, you either have to have your your pre-existing magical characters, and you and you have them uh, influenced by Steiner. You say that maybe you know uh, Steiner might have met um, if you're playing um, uh, the Shadow or something. You say that the the Lamont Cranston and, and Rudolf Steiner you know, corresponded, or that Steiner was astrally in Tibet when when uh, Cranston was. But I don't think that he's got a um, uh, he doesn't really have a a Himmler who goes out goes out there and does crazy interesting things. He's just got sort of, you know, people who say, that's very interesting, and then they go, you know, come up with a new method of theater acting. Right. Uh, we can leave to the uh, listeners the exercise of thinking of interesting uh, hippies, but we can start them off with uh, Brother Yod and Ken yes, Kesey, right, yeah. and there's actually they, 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 hippieism has a dark side, so there's all sorts of actually uh, fascinating characters in uh, that movement. Um, so, uh, I think that we uh, have completed our holistic look at uh, uh, Rudolf Steiner, and we could maybe envision characters possibly going to uh, him or to other people in his movement and getting advice and resources and stuff, but uh, they seem uh, more like sort of foils and mentor figures than uh, someone that, you know, you could have a renegade Steinerite yeah. who is um, using the uh, knowledge of all of these natural forces in order to uh, get into fights with the Nazis and so forth, and there's probably a a disapproving uh, look from anthroposophical headquarters uh, uh, coming his way, but I think you'd have to invent a more renegade, interesting character in order to activate that in a game or even a story. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Uh, so let's uh, declare victory and exit this podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Double Exposure. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep secret quartz at bay by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or new movement-based art form by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again... We will talk about stuff.